the song we sang today, which was new, was uh, concerning the Holy Spirit. And this passage uh, is discussing hope and perspective as being informed by and shaped by the person of the Holy Spirit, communicating to us the things that are the Lord's. That is what belongs to Jesus Christ, he said in, in the Gospel of John, he, the Holy Spirit would communicate those things to us. And in that vein, uh, this passage, although it's often highlighted, especially uh, verse 28, that we know all things work to the, uh, together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that's probably one of the more quoted verses in the book of Romans outside of the, the explicit Romans road. Uh, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, et cetera, et cetera. But this passage does not just talk about perspective of what we know. It talks about, more importantly, what God knows concerning our future destiny. And on Friday night, I just had this overwhelming sense of the Lord wanting to communicate to our body a message of hope. And so this passage, I think, is is what he was leading me to, specifically to understand hope for your life, not just hope for the future where you're, you know, Christians, we don't believe, we're not hoping for that we'll just die and go to heaven. That's not the end goal for Christianity. That's not the end goal for your life, although that is where you're going. Uh, but there's more than that. There's the resurrection from the dead that we talked about in the, the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. The idea that God is in the business of remaking the world uh, through his redemptive history, as we see in this passage that we're going to highlight again, uh, that has a radical meaning for how you deal with frustration, strife, uh, persecution, bad things that happen in your life. Uh, now, I'm not saying that everything in life is rosy, but I'm not saying that you should be hopeless about anything. There's there's nothing at all, according to this passage, that you should be hopeless about. And I want to I want to assert that. And now I'm going to try to prove that to you through this. So we're going to look at these five elements today of this passage. First, the element is of the eternal perspective that Paul takes in this argument. Paul is laying out a series of arguments, building one on top of another, and he has reasoned from where believers are going, as in because of our destiny, our final future with the Lord, he is working backwards to see the ramifications of that end as they tie into today. And so we're going to look at that eternal perspective. We're going to look at the purpose for creation. That is all of the world that you see, all of this, if you watch the news, all of this terrible stuff that's going on in the earth, uh, or all of this uh, frustration, strife, war, famine, um, what What is all that, and why is it happening, and what is God's purpose for the creation in the midst of those terrible things? We're going to look at this threefold groaning. Uh, groaning is a, a word that maybe we don't use that often, but it's it's descriptive of a, a point of uh, frustration. You can think of it like a pit in your stomach. You've got this groan, you've got this urge, this desire that can't be unleashed because of what you see going on around you versus what you believe should be happening. And then we're going to look at the knowledge of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit's knowledge versus our knowledge, and how that impacts our sanctification. And then uh, finally, we're going to look at the defense that this uh, passage gives against discouragement in situations, in circumstances. Now, uh, we're not 
prosperity preachers. We preach Christ crucified. We don't preach uh, 401ks and checks in the bank. We don't preach material prosperity, but we do preach a spiritual solical prosperity, as in God wishes for your heart to thrive in faith throughout life. He does not want you to live a completely discouraged, hopeless life. I'll never change. Things always are bad around me. He wants to communicate to you hope by his Holy Spirit, informing you of the things that are yours in Christ. And that's why, that's why Jesus Christ says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will declare to you or give to you the things that are mine. Uh, and, and when Jesus says the things that are mine, the things that accord with Christ are obviously purity, holiness, joy, happiness, uh, seeing the Father's delight over every aspect of his life. The Holy Spirit is to communicate those to you. And so we're going to look at how all of this passage informs all of our life. Um, so the first thing that we're going to look at is Paul says in verse 18 that he considers the sufferings unworthy to be compared. You can think of this as a, a great statement of Paul's knowledge beforehand. Um, in, this, in this place, he is giving this uh, outworking, this, this message on how sin uh, is is no longer uh, supposed to be an active force in a believer's life, and that the, the believer is, is called to walk by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week, how God wishes that his willing and working in your life would be unioned with your willing and working. Remember Philippians, how we saw that we were to tremble in fear because God is at work in us. We're not working on our, our own life. We're not cleaning our acts up. God is in the business of sanctifying and restructuring, informing, putting formation in us. And in that place, we come alongside the work of God. So Paul's talking about a very similar uh, topic in the precursor to these verses. He's talking about no longer living by the, the flesh, but, but walking in the spirit. And in that context, he begins to talk about, okay, now that we're talking about walking, let's talk about what's going on in your life. And in verse 18, he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So uh, Paul is not here saying that he's compared them. He's saying it's not even worth going through the effort of weighing the scales. He's saying it's not worth comparing uh, because of what? Paul knows beforehand the eternal glory that awaits a believer. This, the, the meta theme in, in all of this passage is knowledge. That is, do what Paul knows versus what believers know versus what the Spirit knows, and God himself also knowing. And Paul is saying, I know that it's not even worth weighing the scales to see whether or not these uh, sufferings are, are worthy of comparing to the eternal glory that awaits us. It's kind of like um, if you I have favorite foods that I love, and whenever I'm, you know, going through my day, let's say I'm, you know, skipping lunch and just wanting a small snack, I see some things in the fridge, and I don't even think about them, because they're not even worth uh, evaluating, um, because I know that, you know, there's still a, a snack here, or something in the freezer. Paul's saying, I kind of glanced at that persecution, that suffering that we're going through, and I know already where we're headed, and so when I see that, I don't even take the time. I don't even let the debate take place in my heart to compare whether I should actually give in to the frustration, to give in to the suffering. Uh, so this is not a gospel-informed 
uh, agnosticism of pain. This isn't just dismissing pain in, in one's life. It's not letting it outweigh the scale uh, or outweigh the balance to throw your life in a, uh, a seesaw of emotions uh, compared to where you're headed. He says, I consider the sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about a glory that is that is in the future, yet it's kind of permeating its way back through time, if you can think of it like that. So he, he talks about this as not weighing the scales. He's not going to get into the debate. Many battles in the believer's life can be won just by simply not letting the, the devil actually bring up the accusation or get you focused on uh, the pain instead of keeping your mind fixed on the spirit. That's what he's talking about in the, we didn't read it, but in the earlier part of chapter eight, he's saying that the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on earthly carnal things is death, but the mindset that is not just a mindset the way that you think, but your mind being set on or, or dedicated to thinking about the things of the spirit is life and peace. And so in that, he's saying, this is my uh, evaluation. This is the, the kind of idea that incorporates all the other uh, discussion in the rest of this chapter. So Paul then begins to say, that uh, he, he begins to show how this works out in a believer's life. And he deals with all the world, and then he begins to deal with uh, the believer in that world as, as an agent of God's redemption uh, of the frustration that the world is in. So Paul is saying they're not uh, worth evaluating. And the Holy Spirit has revealed this to Paul's mind concerning the destiny of the church. One of the things that I always take time to do is to think about the doctrine that the epistle uh, is espousing or, or uh, communicating. I, I read the Bible, but then I also think to myself, okay, Paul knows this experientially. God is using him as his agent to write this love letter to the church, that the church would be formed. And I always take time to, to remember that the Holy Spirit gave this to Paul and that he wishes also for me to begin to enter into the wisdom that's here. And so, in that, Paul's already got this knowledge. He knows these sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the height of the eternal glory that awaits us. And so the Bible, uh, in, in talking about creation, uh, the Bible speaks of creation having a memory. Uh, this, this may seem kind of weird, but uh, things in the natural world, in God's created order, although they are not sentient in the way that you and I are, we can't communicate with rocks and trees and things like this, uh, they have a memory in some sense in that God throughout the scriptures speaks of the trees clapping their hands and the mountains shaking at the presence of God. Creation itself has some uh, imprint or, or residue of, of uh, God's creation on it in the sense that God, when he's about to judge Israel, uh, gives them a warning years beforehand saying that he will call heaven and earth to witness against Israel. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, but if you're going to witness about something, you both have to have eyes and ears to see or know about something and a memory in order to retell. Uh, when Jesus is is hearing that the Pharisees, or sorry, the um, the disciples are, are getting all about uh, keeping the children away. He says that the children must come. At, and likewise, when the Pharisees are telling uh, Jesus to tell everybody to be quiet, Jesus says what? If I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. So 
I don't think that's just a metaphor. I think Jesus is talking about the unique aspect of creation in uh, some element of personhood. And I don't think it's a personhood. We're not, you know, talking about Gaia or Mother Earth or something like that. I'm talking about that God is a personal God and his creation is a personal creation. Um, So in that sense, Paul talks about the creation as suffering under or being subjected under. And so in this place, uh, Paul's discussing the creation having this groan right? This, this, this terrible feeling that something isn't right. Uh, the entire creation, Paul says, has been struck with a curse, but we know that that curse was laid on Christ. Who, who is the one that Paul is talking about subjecting creation? That's God the Father when he comes in Genesis 3 and, and gives the word of judgment that comes on the earth because of Adam's sin. God subjects creation for a purpose. Although this this terrible stuff is happening all around us. This is not the devil's doing. It's God putting the creation under a curse for the right time that that curse would be lifted through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we're supposed to be coming along. Jesus Christ, in taking that curse upon himself, we now being made after the image of Christ are supposed to be burden lifters coming alongside and and bringing freedom and glory. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse uh, 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What that means is that you have an effect on the world around you. The freedom and glory that you are supposed to be walking in, Paul says that we move from glory to glory, that is supposed to leak off and permeate around you. That's supposed to transform the world. And in this sense, creation is moving towards a final destiny. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation subjected, but its destiny was veiled in a mystery. There was no knowledge of what the world was headed towards. And yet Paul says, now that this has come about, now that Christ has come and undone the curse that's over all the world, you now are supposed to be entering into revealing the glory and freedom that accords with being a child of God. And that should touch the world around you. Paul declares the future. Christians have been called by God to bring the creation into freedom and glory. The world is not supposed to get darker and darker. The world is supposed to, uh, according to this, be birthed into freedom and glory. This is an interesting language, but you can think of all of history as a womb around the creation. All of history, all of time, God has subjected uh, create all of creation into the place where it would suffer, uh, not because God's into, uh, you know, putting evil on something, but because of Adam's sin and the way that that Adam had control over the earth and through his sin, Adam turned the earth over to frustration and futility. And in this process, God is trying to bring about glory and freedom. And he does so by having you partner with uh, his son, Jesus Christ, in unleashing freedom on the earth. In, in fact, this actually is the hope of the gospel. In verse 24, uh, he says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, this is a, a very interesting 
uh, topic, and it might seem kind of philosophical or or mysterious. And if that's what you're thinking, that's fine. You don't have to you don't have to get jazzed about all this language of creation and time and these birth pains and this groaning. But I want to communicate to you that you have a purpose, and that purpose is not frustration. The nihilists, those who believe, the, phil- the philosophers who believe that all life is pain, all life is meaningless, there's actually a school of philosophy called absurdism, that is human existence is the ultimate absurdity in the universe, there is no meaning at the end of your days, you just die and turn to dust. Uh, that is a dis- uh, distinctly different and diametrically opposed idea concerning life as to what this teaches. This teaches that there's a point. There is, there is a reason you're here, and without seeing that reason, you will be hopeless. If you do not have at the foundation of your life that you are supposed to bring about good by bringing the grace and love of God into your situation, then you will have, you will have nothing to do but despair. If that's not the bedrock of, of your heart, then, then there's no point for going on. And what I'm trying to communicate is that God wishes for you to have hope. And so Paul talks about this stuff in that context. You're to bring freedom and glory to your uh, sphere that you influence in creation. So under the weight of these present distresses, Paul says there's this groan. And why is there a groan? Have you ever experienced a groan in your life? You've you've felt that kind of ache about your, your uh, circumstances or your condition? The groan is there because you know it shouldn't be like this. And this groan is a difference between your circumstances, your, ex, uh, your experiences, and your expectations. That is, what you're experiencing now, what you're going through now, and what you know to be the future, what you know to be good and God's, God's will for your life, that difference produces a heartache in you. And it's easy, isn't it, to succumb to that heartache. It's easy to get weighed down by the hopelessness that accords with mere circumstantial living. But Paul says there's this groan, and God himself, as we saw last week, God comes alongside us. Here, Paul says that the Spirit comes alongside and groans as well. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. God is bringing about the new heavens and and the new earth through the redemption of of the world that took place by Jesus Christ and is like yeast throughout a loaf of bread, leavening all of the world. It's touching and it's beginning to spread uh, its influence. Uh, If you've ever played a game called StarCraft, there's these type of aliens in the game called StarCraft, and they're not able to move forward in the game until their little stuff that covers the earth extends out. They've got this like pink goo. It's also, if you like Star Trek, it's kind of like being assimilated into the Borg. The Borg, the Borg continues to, to fill the universe. Now, I'm not really into Star Trek, but I think the idea holds. The sphere of influence and grace that God wishes to bring to the earth is supposed to spread. You have to move that out. You have to spread it about. And so creation is being birthed through time and history. And in this, God is having us participate. So we're born in this hope. And we talked uh, earlier briefly about the spirit coming along and also participating in this groan. So creation longs to be at harmony with its creator. Remember, it has some sense of agency. It does, it's not a person. It can't communicate. We're not going out and, you know, 
touching the trees and getting in tune with the rocks. But creation, the world, all of God's, all of God's earth uh, has some sense of being, wanting to be with the creator, wanting to be at harmony again. And God has chosen in time, in space to birth the next age, the new heavens and the new earth through redemptive history. And we are, are uh, favored to participate in that. It's not a chore. We're actually agents of God's glory. And so the Spirit comes along and helps us in this task. We're not off here, you know, doing this on our own. We're not supposed to be uh, working hard in our flesh so that God's grace would be spread. Rather, the Spirit is coming alongside us. By the Spirit, we are assured of our destiny to be fully redeemed as sons of God. Therefore, we groan as well. We participate along with that groaning. We know that our future glory rests with being with our Creator for all eternity. And yet, you know, we got to deal with like car batteries dying and uh, car accidents and sickness and death and cancer and, you know, all of these horrible things that go along with this. Uh, experience of life that we have. And so how do we reconcile? Well, we reconcile, according to Paul, with a groan. And this groan is the active place from which we are supposed to pray. And that's what Paul says the Spirit does on our behalf. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God is sympathetic to your pain and suffering. To, to think about the, the terrible things that go along in your life and to live in such a way as God has no knowledge of that is, is extremely depressing. And I don't think it's right. I think it's the perspective that the enemy would have you take. He would have you think that God is off in heaven and that he hasn't come near. But we believe that through Jesus Christ, God did come near. And also Jesus says, "Once I, it's your, to your benefit that I go so that I would send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate. And so after Jesus Christ has ascended at the day of Pentecost, we believe that he sent the Holy Spirit to help those in his church live and to to operate in a spirit of grace and truth. We believe as Christians, God has come near. He's not the man upstairs, right? That, that common phrase from our culture, oh, I got to get right with the man upstairs. Uh, no, we believe that God has come near to us. And in this place, the Holy Spirit participates with this groan that we experience, this frustration. And here we begin to see this language of knowledge really come closely uh, to us. So the Spirit's groaning, the creation's groaning, we're groaning, the Spirit's groaning, there's a whole lot of groaning going on. And the Spirit is groaning because he wants to bring about this fruit of sanctification and holiness in our life. We, we look around at the world and we see all this terrible stuff on the news or, or in our friends or our family, but the Holy Spirit looks at our heart and he sees the fruit of our indwelling remaining sin and, and our lack of ability to uh, overcome that by his grace. And he has this groan and his groan is, is because he wishes to bring about the freedom and glory that accords with being a son or a daughter of God in our hearts before it uh, touches the rest of the earth. In verse 26, it says that the Spirit himself intercedes. We, we often remember as Christians that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf of the church, but you also have to recognize that the Spirit himself is also interceding. 
so you've got the father who is, is hearing these prayers, these intercessions from both the son and the spirit. And this is a mighty picture of how, for, uh, how toward God is towards you uh, or how, how completely toward you uh, he, he is. And in this place, we begin to see Paul talking about knowledge and how that informs hope. And, and so this is a little uh, dicey. I want you to try to think hard about what I'm about to say concerning knowledge. Um, but I think Paul is trying to communicate something to us as to how we are to maintain hope in this experience of living somewhat a frustrating life and yet seeing where we're going. So Paul's intention is to show how knowledge informs hope. And so in this vein, Paul demonstrates the Holy Spirit as our knowledgeable helper and advocate. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside. And uh, if you've ever helped anybody, it's usually not very helpful if you don't know more than they do uh, concerning something important. Uh, I would say quite distinctly that you will never know as much as the Holy Spirit does. Um, and so the Holy Spirit comes alongside you as a more knowledgeable helper and a more, uh, a more willing and a more able helper to uh, assist you along the, this walk, this life that you have. And so the Holy Spirit knows particular things, as Paul says. We're going to look at verse 26 again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and then I'm going to put the emphasis in a different place. For we do not know as we ought. We don't know what to pray for, but the, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So Paul is talking about uh, at the beginning, remember, he said, I know that it's not worth comparing. Paul's got this knowledge. And then he says at this point, the Spirit comes alongside. Why does he come alongside? Because we don't know. You don't know what to pray for. And so this, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and intercedes on your behalf, doing the things, praying the things that you need, that you don't recognize that you need. Isn't that a great idea? We, we were talking in, this, in the Sunday school hour about day timers and planners and to-do lists. You don't know what to put on your to-do list, spiritually speaking. You don't know what God wishes to uh, remedy in your deficiencies. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and intercedes because the Holy Spirit has knowledge. And this is where understanding this focus on knowledge helps you understand the text. Uh, so the Spirit is filling up what's lacking in our knowledge with his knowledge. Therefore, we're strengthened and matured. God is not leaving your sanctification up to you. You're not just on this Christian walk and you got to get it together or God's going to reject you. We believe that as a believer, having been baptized into the death of Christ, likewise being raised into his newness of life, given the Holy Spirit, that God is at work in you, like we talked about last week, both willing, causing you to desire to pursue him, and working, actually doing something in your heart to turn it towards him. And here, not only that picture is emphasized, but also that the Holy Spirit is praying for you which is a very interesting idea. We don't, we don't often peer into how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact. But Paul here is wanting you to know that God is concerned toward you. And so the Holy Spirit here is praying for you because he has knowledge about where you should be going and what you should be doing. The Holy Spirit prays on our behalf to God the Father the things that are necessary for our growth and maturity in, after the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit understands and comes alongside you, uh, side you and intercedes. 
Now, this, this language about intercession is very important. If you've ever prayed for someone, let's say you've got a friend or, or you know, a brother, a sister, a family member, or someone just out in the world, if you've ever actually participated in the work, the prayerful work of intercession, that is asking God to have mercy on their account, you have to come alongside and actually begin to put your heart and your mind uh, at in a direction to be engaged with the concerns of that person's life. If you're going to do, do true intercession, right? Um, as a believer, we don't believe that we can just uh, kind of let the world go on about its course. We are supposed to be praying. Paul says, it, or uh, Peter at one point says that we're supposed to, to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. In other places, we're told to pray continually for the, the saints and the apostles that they would be given much fruit. And so we're supposed to be praying for uh, these these different areas of life, these different people in life. And if we're to do intercession properly, we have to come alongside and enter into what it's like to be them for a second in our mind and our heart, right? Uh, if you're going to actually intercede on behalf of someone, you are interpositioning yourself between them and God in a, in a proper way. If you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, before God destroys those cities, he uh, Abram comes and puts himself in front of God. And you see this over and over again, where it's 50, if God spares Sodom and Gomorrah, if there's only 50, okay, maybe let me, can I buy 25, you know, and then 10, five, God, surely you wouldn't destroy these cities for five righteous for, and, you know, and so he, Abram is interpositioning uh, himself in between God and this coming judgment against these terribly wicked cities. And so this is what intercession means. What this means is that, that you have to, to participate in, you have to think about, you have to let your heart become affectionate towards those you're praying for to do intercession rightly. And understanding the nature of intercession, we see that the Holy Spirit actually has thoughts and desires concerning your destiny. He has knowledge that you don't have. So in this place, verse 27 uh, it says that, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit. Now, I believe he in this verse should be capitalized. I think it is it is obviously uh, not you. You don't search the hearts. It's obviously not Paul. Paul doesn't search the hearts. It's clear that God, from the rest of scripture, his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, testing the heart of men. Here, this is saying that God is the one who searches the hearts. He knows the things that are on the mind of the Spirit. That is, the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has concerning your good, your future. The Father knows them. How does he know them? Paul then says, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. The Spirit is actively communicating to the Father the things that he, that he longs for to be produced in your life. And this is why, as believers, we think it is right, we teach that, it, that this is true, that we have been invited into the life of God, that we are to participate in uh, the divine nature through these wonderful gifts that, that God has given to us. You didn't earn the right for the Holy Spirit to be concerned with you. It's God's grace that the Holy Spirit is thinking these things towards you. He has knowledge that you don't have. And therefore, in his mercy, in his grace, he intercedes to the Father on your behalf. That is a mighty assistance, isn't it? 
I mean, I, I'm thankful every time I hear that other believers are praying for me. I ought to be thankful when I hear this new teaching that God himself is concerned with, with my life and that it's so concerning that in the Godhead there's a conversation going on. This is an amazing doctrine. God the Father has heard the things in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit has told him. That's a paraphrase of verse 27. The Holy Spirit is in his intercession on your behalf, on my behalf. He has thoughts and desires, yearnings and hopes for our future glory, for the Spirit desires to communicate to us the things that belong to Christ, namely holiness and purity. Jesus, when he says that the Holy Spirit's going to come, he says that the Holy Spirit will declare or announce he, he will read the will, so to speak, the things that belong to me. So Jesus, Jesus has earned this right of uh, position with the Father. We've, we talked two weeks ago, ago about how uh, in Hebrews, there's a recitation of a psalm. I think it's 84. I, I could be wrong. But he says that, that God says to the Son that, oh God, you have, been, uh, you have loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, moreover above all your peers. Jesus Christ, in walking as a man perfectly, has earned a favorable disposition in God's, in God's evaluation. And he says that the Holy Spirit will come and declare the things that belong to me. Now that's a mighty uh, mystery, which takes uh, you know, eternity to search out, but the Holy Spirit is at work uh, with thoughts, intentions, desires, wishing for you to be strengthened uh, in in your walk of being justified and glorified after the image of Christ. So Paul then begins to talk about those um, those doctrines. Of course, we're totally we're not totally ignorant of the gospel. We know some things. Earlier, Paul was talking about how we don't know. But this isn't a, a religion that just affects people who don't know anything and they don't have to participate or anything like that. Paul then begins to say that we do have knowledge. Look at verse 28. And we know that, those, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So earlier, uh, Paul says, I know that they're not worth comparing. Then he talks about how uh, we don't know as we ought, but the Holy, Him, Holy Spirit himself has this knowledge. And then he then says, we also have a little bit of knowledge, and this knowledge informs our hope. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that, and that knowledge informs our hope. He then begins to talk about those who are called, that is the effectual call of God uh, on a believer's life, uh, bringing them out of death and into life, that that call was done in a series of events or a chain of events that are like dominoes falling over. And so building on this knowledge, Paul highlights God's eternal foreknowledge as the signifier of the certainty of our sanctification in time. Now that's really heavy. That, that may be a big sentence, but, but we're talking about knowledge. Paul knows sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the eternal glory. The Holy Spirit knows things that we need to be praying about ourselves, but we're not. And then we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. And now another type of knowledge is brought into the mix. God himself, knowing eternally uh, about you, seeing you in time, that is God's action looking into time, foreknew that he would call you and bring you into uh, justification and glorification. Now this is... 
This is, uh, as they say in Back to the Future, this is heavy. Um, but just bear with me for a second. This is talking about God. For those whom God foreknew, that is knowledge beforehand, eternally distant knowledge, he also predestined, that's God's action. So God knows and in the mind of God, he then decides to act. He's predestined you, he's decided beforehand that you would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn among brothers. In the eternal counsel of God, because of God's loving nature, God the Father loves the Son and wishes for the Son not only to have a bride, in some places we talk about the language of the bride, but God also wishes for the Son to have brothers. Now, these brothers are always little s sons, or to, in modern language, daughters, uh, but God wishes to create a family, and in this family you've been invited in that God, that God the Son would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then talking about those people, it, it then says that God, uh, verse 30, and those whom he, that is God, predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, I don't know about you, but those all look like past tense verses or verbs. Uh, you have been called. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust him, if you have stopped trusting yourself to produce this justification that you need, if that's true of you, it's a, uh, what Paul says is you've been known by God beforehand, you've been called uh, after, after he predestined you or decided, and he justified you, he, he declared you righteous, being washed by the blood of his son, and then after that, he glorified you. Remember, in, in baptism, we're united in Christ's death and resurrected in his newness of life. And Paul says that we've been, uh, we looked at this three weeks ago, Paul says that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. What happened when Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father? He was glorified. He was given the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is right to say that you have been, in this sense, past tense, glorified. You have been given glory to walk in in this life. This is not a future-only religion. You are supposed to have glory here today. Now, that glory often looks like trousers and a shovel or uh, a changing uh, bag and some diapers, but that glory is real. In the book of 1 John uh, chapter 4, it says that we have already been glorified. It says that as he is, as Jesus Christ is now, so also are we in this world in, at this time. We have already been given this glory. It's a past tense reality. So we're predestined unto justification and sanctification after the image of Christ. And just as God considered Christ blameless and vindicated him in the resurrection or demonstrated Jesus as righteous, not worthy to be put to death, so also he has justified us and united us to the glorification of Jesus Christ. As, as believers, we believe we are united by the Holy Spirit to Jesus himself, and there is a real personal relationship there. And in that, Jesus having been glorified, we also get this kind of spillover trickle effect. And so the Holy Spirit is bringing about this knowledge. Paul wishes that you would know that so that you are not living hopelessly. Paul is explaining these things so that you would know God is doing all this for you. It's not your effort. It's not you who have foreknown from eternity past. It's not you who called yourself. It's not you who predestined that you would be justified. It's not you who justified yourself. It, and it's not you who has sanctified and has, has glorified you. 
This is God's doing. And Paul wishes to declare those things to the believers so that they would know that God has concern for them. So that's heavy, right? And at this point, it's right to say that, that Paul, uh, what he's just laid out, it demands a reaction. In the next verse, he says, what then shall we say to these things? Uh, that's kind of the, the Bible's language of saying, hold the phone. Like, I just heard this amazing news that I won the eternal lottery. And, 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 and in this, I need, to change, I need to get all my stuff in order. Let's get all the debt paid off. Let's invest heavily. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? The knowledge that God has invited you into his life demands a reaction. And the reaction that it demands, according to what the language that comes after, Paul says, is changing your mind, changing your perspective about the things that happen around you. And those two areas are, first, uh, your heart's condition in confidence before God, and then also how you respond to the terrible stuff that happens around you. The, the, the prosperity preachers take this stuff and then say, well, that means that nothing bad will ever happen to you. I don't think that's clear here. I think it's clear that bad stuff is going to happen to you. And what matters is how you deal with that. Uh, we're going to look at these things really quickly. Um, <clears throat> Verse 32, he who, uh, sorry, verse 31, second half, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give him all things? This isn't a Lexus. This isn't a house. This is talking about all things that are necessary for life in godliness. That is everything that you need, everything that you lack, God is going to graciously dispense those things for free to you because of what Jesus Christ has purchased on your behalf. Uh, this isn't saying that you can just, you know, buy up large islands and have yachts. This isn't talking about material things. This is talking about the things that accord with godliness. And so verse 32, he who did not spare his own son uh, is talking about the father's heart concerning you. So the spirit has knowledge concerning you. He, he, he has desires and therefore he prays. The father also, his heart was toward you in that he decided to give his son. Also the son gave himself up as well. And then Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So when the, when the enemy accuses, uh, you know, you can think of him kind of cowering in the corner in the courtroom of heaven, uh, just barely able to get a voice in, but, uh, uh, you know, kind of raising his hand, hoping to be an acknowledged. Uh, the scene from Job is, is maybe uh, a memory that you have of reading the scriptures. There, there God is holding court and Satan comes in to try to accuse Job and, and God, uh, you know, lets Job be tested for a second. But here Paul is saying that, you know, who is there who can bring a charge against God's elect, right? It's not right for you to give credence to an argument that isn't accepted in the courtroom of heaven. It's not evidence that is permissible, right? And so Paul is saying there's no one who can bring an effectual charge. The accuser of the brethren, that is Satan himself, cannot speak a word in the courtroom of heaven that has any claim of validity on you. He's just kind of trying to be acknowledged, inadmissible. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Now, this is an amazing picture. God the Father, has his heart is towards those who he would call, and so he gave his son. 
And also the Holy Spirit earlier in this chapter is interceding for you. And now it says that Jesus Christ, after having atoned for you, is now at the right hand of God. He is also interceding. He's also praying. So we've got two thirds of the Godhead here interceding on our behalf. That's amazing. And of course, the Father isn't, isn't hard of hearing. So here, God has acted mightily on our behalf. Not only has God known us before the foundation of the world, he's also sent his son and raised us up with him. And he has sent forth the spirit to aid us, praying on our behalf, and Christ is interceding as well. These are amazing glimpses. And oh, that it were the case that my heart would be like Paul's every moment of the day. That these things, which Paul is so easy to write and declare to the church through this epistle, would actually become the formation, the the structure of your heart, of your emotions in day-to-day life. And so that's why I say Paul is, is pointing out these for two reasons, to keep your heart from, uh, from failing or being condemned in the midst of your uh, sin and, and your suffering, and also that your heart would not fail in the midst of your circumstances, which is what Paul then begins to turn his attention to. Verse, we're not going to look at verse 35 or 36, but we're going to go to 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's helpful to consider the number of things that Paul is talking about here. He's saying every uncre- uh, every created thing which we don't see, that is angels, nor nor demons, uh, rulers, present things, nor things in the future, uh, all of these things are not able to separate us from the love of God. So he's just dealt with all of the spiritual realm and all of the earthly realm, that is tribulation, pestilence, sword, famine, etc. And then he moves on to talking about time, things now or things in the future. There won't be something that's discovered tomorrow that undoes the justification that you've received by faith through Jesus Christ. There isn't some undiscovered sin in your life that God is going to turn over one day, like turning over a log and you see all these gross things, centipedes and crickets and stuff. That's not going to happen in your life. There's nothing that can happen in the future that can separate you from the love of Christ. He says, nor height, nor depth, He's talking, he's using language that's very mysterious. He's saying that there's nothing, uh, there's, there's no one thing. And then to communicate that, he gives all these examples. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. And so that's why I say Paul is wishing that knowledge would inform hope. He's declaring these things so that the believers would have these things in mind when the circumstance happens. It is right to build the foundation deep and strong before the flood. It is very hard to establish the banks in the midst of the flood. It is very easy to prepare beforehand and get the concrete time to settle and, and, and uh, cure. It is not easy to, in the moment of suffering, uh, attempt to not only overcome that suffering, but also get a doctrine of why it's right to have hope in the midst of terrible circumstances. That's why Paul is telling these things to the church so that they would survive the sufferings that come in the centuries after this letter is written. If you want to think about it from a historical perspective, likewise, it is prudent for you as a believer in this country, in this cultural context, in this time context, uh, so to speak, to build a foundation that will weather the storm. 
That's why I, I'm confident to say that God is wishing to communicate a message of hope to this church. He wishes that those who operate in a spirit of discouragement would stop because it does a few things wrongly that I think are clear. There's not one be, uh, part of our life that is worthy of being hopeless. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the life of Christ. And this hope is, of course, as we've seen, this hope is not in who you are, right? It's not in, it's not in what you've done, as Paul is saying all these important things that have happened, the series of dominoes, God called you, predestined, uh, justified, glorified you. All those have fallen, they're past tense verbs, They've all fallen down, and and your life is in a direction. It's headed somewhere. And Paul is not giving you hope because of what you've done. He's saying there's reason to hope because of what God's done on your behalf and what he's still doing. And in that same vein, he's he's kind of showing you that there's no reason, there's there's nothing valid uh, that would cause you to be hopeless about any dimension of life. Now, admittedly, Things look bad in certain circumstances, whether you're watching the news or you've got this relationship that's messed up or your finances are in shambles or, or whatever, but those are the externals. And what Paul is wishing is that in, in your heart, it would not fail in the midst of darkness, right? Seeing the storm clouds on the horizon shouldn't give you cause for concern. You should be anchored in the knowledge that he says in verse 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And so in that way, we are to be hope-filled. And what I would encourage you is that through the next few seasons uh, of life, the next few, both the holidays and also Christmas, the time of Advent that we're about to start celebrating next week, and, um, and also uh, into Christmas, that we would see God coming into the world to bring hope, right? What is the declaration that the angels give when they're, when they're uh, singing the hymn over those hills and the shepherds hear them? They say, glory to God in the highest, and what? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. God wishes to bring you hope. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We do ask, Lord, that you would sever off any uh, hooks from the enemy that would give us concern, that would cause us to worry. Lord, we pray that you would give us deep and wide foundations with good spiritual concrete and rebar that would outlast the storms of the enemy. Lord, we pray that you would form us, that you would give us instruction, that you would put structure in us that would be able to withstand the storms of life. Lord, we ask you that you would catch us up in the fellowship of your, uh, of your person, that we would see the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ himself, interceding on our behalf to you, that we would see your kind fatherly disposition towards us, that you're not wishing to just uh, bring down a hammer the next time we fail. Lord, we ask that you would give us a mighty assurance of the of what has already happened to us, Lord. And if there are those in this room who have not begun to uh, trust you, Lord, I ask that you would call them, that you would bring them uh, into the life of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your mighty, mighty uh, grace that is towards us. And, and Lord, we thank you that you at one point had Paul write these things down, that we would Uh, be able to receive them. We ask, Lord, that you would give us functional knowledge, that we would have relational experiential knowledge, that these things would not just be intellectually true, that that they would be 
true in our hearts, true in our minds, that we would begin to operate in light of what's happened in this text. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.